Welcome to the Holy Cross Sermon Podcast. We are in a series called Kingdom Stories, where we're exploring some of the parables that Jesus used to teach about his kingdom in the book of Luke. Join us now as we dive into another story. Let's take a moment and pray together as we come to the scriptures. Lord, thank you as we continue in this Kingdom Stories series. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come and fill our minds and our hearts. Come and open the scriptures to us. Come, Lord, and fill my words and speak through them and make them your own, that they might lead us to Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I love the story about the little boy who was drawing one day in his kindergarten class. He was just scribbling furiously away and His teacher came up and looked down at his paper to see what he was doing, and she asked him, Johnny, what are you drawing? And he said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And she smiled, and and she said, well, nobody knows what God looks like. And Johnny, well, in all seriousness, put his crayon down, and he looked up at her and said with dead seriousness, well, they will when I'm finished. Jesus today is drawing a picture for us. Of God. He wants us to see what God is truly like. This is his desire, that you and I would know the real and true and living God. And so he draws us a picture, and he does so by showing us, through this story we hear, what people are like by showing us the lostness of two sons, and what God is like through the consistent and costly love of the Father. He shows us what we're like through the two sons and what God is like through the consistent and costly love of the Heavenly Father. This parable is undoubtedly one of the best-known and most well-loved parables Jesus told. Charles Dickens once called it the greatest short story ever told. It's powerful because not only does Jesus draw a picture of God for us, not only does he show us what the Heavenly Father is like, but it's nearly impossible to hear the story and, if you're paying attention, not find yourself in it. It's nearly impossible. It's generally been called the parable of the prodigal son, singular, because so much of the action focuses on the younger brother, the younger son, who is lost due to his rebelliousness. Let's take a look at him a bit. Verse 12 says, as he makes a demand, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Here's this son impetuously demanding his inheritance before his father is even dead. It's like saying, Dad, you've been living way too long. I wish you'd just kick the bucket and give me my stuff. So I want it now, and I'm out of here. Verse 13, we are told he gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And that's why he's called the prodigal because he's wasteful. That's one of the definitions of the word prodigal. He blows it all in lavish living. As the story goes, thankfully, right, he finally bottoms out. He realizes how lost he is along the way. He comes to his senses. Verse 17 says, but when he came to himself, which means basically the lights come on, he gets some awareness. We might say his denial is finally broken. The consequences of his choices have caught up to him, or as they say in the recovery movement, he finally hit his bottom. And that's when he comes 
fully awake. It's kind of like me this morning when the alarm went off. I mean, I sat bolt upright and I thought, the pain is too much, turn it off. He's awake and he sees what's going on. He knows how stuck he has become and how far he's wandered. And that's when he right, figures out this plan about how he can work his way, earn his way back into God's, his father's good graces. But of course, the father meets him, has none of it, and simply restores him to sonship. I was thinking and praying about this story this week, and I remembered an incident that happened in my own family. Uh, one of my kids was, I think, probably four years old, and she got so mad at the injustice of not getting her way in her father's house that she stormed into her room and packed up her little pink backpack put a doll and a book and a sippy cup in there and headed for the door. Went out the front door and into the front yard, which was already a boundary crossing. Really, you were only at that time supposed to have an adult with you in the front yard. And marched straight on out of the yard and into the street, another big no-no, and on down the street past quite a number of houses until she ended up in the far country at the stop sign down the way. That's where she sat herself down. I think she began to come to her senses at that point. And that's when the tears began. Well, at some point she got up and started for home and that's when she noticed me. I had been following behind, not far back. And suddenly the, well, the shame and the fear and the anger turned to relief as she ran up and into her father's arms and we went back home together. She was in a far country. She came to herself and received her father's love. Now that's a, a fairly innocent account of what it's like to leave the father's house and to end up in a far country. But before you write it off as just sort of a cute parenting story or you know, something that doesn't mean all that much, it's really important to realize that the far country, well, it's a place that we've all gone at one time or another. Author Kyle Eidelman says the far country can be defined as any area of our lives where we have walked away from God. It's possible that every part of you is living in the far country, or it may just be a specific area of your life where you've left God out. Right? You've put up some no trespassing signs, do not enter. God, you can go anywhere but here. That's the far country could be your finances. You can go anywhere, God, but don't mess with my finances. It could be a hidden eating disorder or some other compulsive behavior, an area of dysfunction in your family, or of course, some kind of an addiction. The far country could easily be what you secretly watch on the internet or your business. You realize your business could be the far country that you don't let God in unless he wants to bless it, of course. And yet the way you treat your employees or the way you deal with your customers might be a place you've not let God into. If you're an employee, the far country could be some place in your work life where you've grown lazy or entitled. The far country could even be in the midst of your marriage itself, a place where you won't let God in. When you start to think about it, the younger son and the far country, well, they may not be so far away from us after all. But what about that older brother 
I mean, verse 11 says there was a man who had two sons. The story is not just about the younger brother who is lost, but also about the older brother who is lost. And so you could easily call this the parable of the prodigal sons, plural. Jesus intends us to realize that the older brother in the story is also a prodigal son. Now, he never leaves home, but he is just as lost. He hasn't lived wildly or irresponsibly like a younger brother, but he has foolishly squandered his relationship with the father, just like the younger brother had. Think about his response, for instance, when he finds out that there's a party going on because dad's throwing it for the younger brother. Well, he's enraged. Verse 28, but he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Can you hear him spitting accusation at the father? His no sense of the favor bestowed upon him by virtue of his being a son of the father. And that's why the father immediately gently reminds him of his identity. Verse 31, the father said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. Can you see how he too is a prodigal? He is wasteful. He has squandered what has been given him because he's got a hard heart. He believes himself to be morally upright, spiritually superior, not in need of anything. After all, he's kept the rules. He thinks he's been good because he's buttoned up. He believes himself to be the one who stayed in line, and therefore he's worthy. There's no external boundaries he's crossing, but he's full of pride, and he's full of self-righteousness. If you listen to him and you think about his heart, it's a miserly heart. It's an angry heart. It's a heart that's more like a slave than the heart of a son. And he disdains his father equally as the younger brother had. He's just biding his time. The younger son at least had the courage to demand. This one is just waiting the old man out until he too can get his stuff. He is far away in his relationship with the father it's just not so obvious with him. Uh, Tim Keller said, the bad son was lost in his badness, but the good son was lost in his goodness. And that's the challenge which Jesus understood the human heart has. And it's why he put the older brother in the story. You see, if you're like the older brother, you generally don't see yourself as an older brother or as a prodigal son. So he creates this character, Jesus the master, who's hardworthy, working, looks faithful, looks religious, who's done the right things, who measures up, because Jesus was trying to wake up the Pharisees both then and also now. Let's think for a minute about a few of those characteristics generally of an older brother or an older brother prodigal. For instance, they tend to focus on the flaws in others. They're critical and hard to please. Their words tend to be very sharp. They're demanding and narrow. There's not a lot of room for grace for themselves 
or for anyone else. And forgiveness, oh my goodness, it's just a word. They focus on minor issues and make them large. And they love to take offense and then separate themselves. I wonder if you remember the Jeff Foxworthy comedy bit, You Might Be a Redneck, right? Say things like, if none of your shirts fit over your stomach, you might be a redneck. If your uncle is also your brother-in-law, you might be a redneck. If you've ever seen Roadkill and thought to yourself, that could be dinner, you might be a redneck. Well, you might be an older brother if you ever find yourself saying things like, well, a real Christian would never do that. Or a true Christian always does this. You might be an older brother. See, older brothers have a lot of always and nevers and shoulds and oughts, and the people around them often feel a kind of a sense of shame in their presence. You find yourself saying, what's wrong with that group of people, that race, that denomination, that generation? Well, you might be an older brother. And I got to tell you, you can be a young person speaking about an older generation or an older generation speaking about a young person and have the heart of an older brother. Of course, in this political season we are in, you could easily find yourself saying and thinking and maybe declaring on social media, how can you be a Christian if you vote for that candidate? And incidentally, I've heard people on both the right and the left saying those sorts of statements. You might be an older brother. You find yourself saying things like, if that's what those people believe about the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, healing, baptism, you name it, I don't want to have anything to do with them, you might be an older brother. And oh yeah, there's one more. You might be an older brother if you say something like, can you believe what the pastor said today? I'm not sure this is the church for us. You might be an older brother. Now, when you let yourself sit in this kingdom story and let this parable have its way and pay attention, you will probably identify with either the younger brother or the older brother. Or if you're like me, there's parts of you that identify with both of them. And that's the point in which Jesus offers you a gift. He wants us to recognize our lostness. And he wants us to recognize our deep need. So that one thing becomes clear, and one thing shines through, and one thing becomes bright. The thing that Jesus wants us to see so desperately is the unchanging nature of the Father. He is the consistent figure throughout the story. He demonstrates a lavishness, a costly love that never changes based on the circumstances. He bears the shame and the reproach of both the brothers and their lostness. He bears the cost of their rebellion, the cost of their self-righteousness. He's abundant in his approach to both of them. That's why pastors like Tim Keller and others have rightly, I think, renamed this parable the parable of the prodigal God. God is actually the prodigal, and if that sounds odd to your ears, remember that prodigal isn't just wasteful. Prodigal means, by definition, extravagant, lavish, unrestrained. Lloyd Ogilvy points out that, that Jesus sets the negative prodigality of the sons against the creative prodigality of the father. For instance, look at verse 20. 
While he, the younger brother, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And verse 22 says, But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. They began to celebrate. The father is constantly watching out for the younger son who's lost. And then he runs to him. And as the Middle Eastern scholar, Dr. Kenneth Bailey says, this is a shameful act. No Middle Eastern nobleman would do this sort of thing. It would bring shame and reproach upon him from the community. He would lose his standing. People would gawk and they would talk. He would lose face. And of course, Jesus' listeners would expect the father to get to that younger son and rebuke him and, and tell him what he had done wrong and then make him pay, they would expect the father to enact justice. But what does the father do? He responds with a costly love. And he has compassion and mercy and grace and he gives restoration. And you see that same consistent love the father has also with the older son, the older brother. Verse 28. He, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in, so his father came out and entreated him. Just as the father should never have gone out to the younger son, neither should he have gone out to the older son. Leaving the party publicly is a disgrace. That the older son wouldn't come brings disgrace on the father. There's public humiliation coming from this older son to the father. And the father, instead of going out to rebuke him, comes out and entreats him which means that he speaks to him earnestly, pleading. There's a vulnerability there. He's trying to help the older son overcome his lostness. And in some sense, you might say he's going further with the older son than he's had to do with the younger son. The younger son started home. The older son is stuck out in the field. Verse 31, And the father said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Do you see the lavishness? His costly love, his prodigality. The father is the prodigal God. He doesn't shun the son. He reminds him of his identity. Well, that leaves a question, and it's a question in the story that Jesus intends us to engage. The question that's left is, how will the older brother respond? Will he remain separated and stay outside the father's house? Will he uh, continue to avoid the celebration we don't know. That's the invitation. It's this amazing story, isn't it? A story of lostness and a story of love. And I would just say, now, what do you do with it? How do you apply the text? Great story, Chris, but what, so what? Well, I, I would suggest that if you recognize yourself in the story, you respond. Take your cue from the younger son, though, and not the older Verse 20 says, and he arose and came to his father. If the alarm bell's going off in your heart, don't hit snooze. Don't go back to sleep. It's, it's time. Get up now, not later. Start with some honesty by responding to what the Holy Spirit has stirred in you in the midst of this sermon. Start by confessing to God your need, but then do something. Michael Novak, the Catholic philosopher, says that until there's action, our beliefs and convictions aren't genuine. 
So talk to someone about your lostness. Get honest about the far country you're in. Talk to your spouse or a friend or a life group leader or one of the pastors of the church. You might need to apologize to somebody who's in the room with you right now. Or you might need to pick up the phone today and call someone and tell them you've wasted the relationship and you're very sorry. If your spending's out of control, it's time for a budget. You might need some help building it. Don't just delete the history of your computer. Get some accountability for the lust that's in your life. Your drinking is out of control, it's time for AA, or maybe it's time for rehab. If you're in a troubled marriage, stop looking at your spouse's issues and deal with your own. And then you get some counseling, and then invite him or her to join you. And if you're judging someone in your family or your life group or your church because their views are different than your views, repent and go have coffee with them. Not to change their views, but to get to know them. Take a step toward them and out of your own comfort zone. Whatever you do, please don't be like the older son. Be like the younger son. Arise. Come home to your heavenly father, the prodigal God, who entered the world, who washed feet, who endured a cross. Why? Because of the lavish love he has for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning and we praise you that this word and this story would find a place within us and in finding a place within us would find an action through us. Deliver us, strengthen us, encourage us, and send us out, Lord, to be your people in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.